So Greg's handing out a picture of the tabernacle. So let's read together. I'll read, you follow, in Hebrews 9. And I was thinking I'd like to read the whole chapter, but I think we'll just read the first 15 verses. So we're going to talk about the service and the sanctuary from Hebrews chapter 9. Okay, you there? Hebrews 9. It says, Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and, earthly, and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the, the, part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing the services. But into the second part of the The high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, convinced only with, concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances, imposed until the time of reformation. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, But with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Let's pray. So Holy Spirit, we're again thankful For your ministry, you teach us all things, bring to remembrance whatsoever we've been commanded. You are the helper, the teacher, you reveal things, you compare spiritual things to spiritual things. And Lord, we're praying tonight that by your spirit you would instruct and teach and draw us, Lord, into your very presence, into that holy place where we have fellowship with you, we're learning, we're growing, we're going on, Lord, in our walk with you to perfection like Paul or the writer of Hebrews said in, in chapter 6, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the, the foundations. Lord, help us, I pray, to be building on the things that we know, the foundation that you've given to us in Christ and all these other things. And tonight I pray you just take in and give us ears to hear and bless your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So just, I, I think it's good, every, actually every time that I'm beginning a study, because we're doing it sort of intermittently here with different guys, I always like to go back and just say, okay, how do we get here? 
So in Hebrews chapter 4, that chapter, I'm going to go there and start there, is all about entering his rest. Those who have believed do enter, and those who have received do enter his rest. So just basic stuff here, simple foundational things that are leading us onward in Hebrews. We who have believed do enter that rest. It's the rest of faith. It's the rest knowing that God has accomplished for us what we could not accomplish for ourselves. So we believe that God's promise remains. It remains for me, for you. Secondly, Hebrews 5 through 7. Jesus is our great high priest. Can you hear an amen? We've been hearing about that. This whole book is all about Jesus. The Bible is all about Jesus. Jesus is our great high priest. In Hebrews chapter 4 through 5.11, we have a great high priest, Jesus, who is the Son of God. They had every other high priest. That's what with Israel. God gave them the priesthood. So they had every high priest just following after Aaron. Jesus, though, has become our high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And we've talked about that in our, in our different studies leading up to here. Now, Hebrews 6 is sort of a, an intermittent part of the, of the book that's saying, okay, let's not lay again all these things that we should be building upon, and let us go on to completeness. Let's go on in our walks with Christ. And so Jesus is our great high priest in chapter 7. He's the great high priest of a better blessing, the blessing of someone greater, greater than Abraham, greater than the whole Levitical priesthood is this Son of God, our Savior, Jesus. He is the high priest not only of a better blessing, but of a better hope. So our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Our hope is in Christ. We're anchored in the veil. He changed and annulled forever the order of the Aaronic priesthood, and he is after the order of Melchizedek. In, cha- in chapter 7, the latter part, Jesus is high priest of a better covenant. It is not based on human priesthood. Can I hear an amen? It's not based on some hierarchy. It's based on God's priesthood established after the order of Melchizedek, king and priest. The law that had to do with fleshly commandments and orders, this is based completely and solely upon God's oath, God's promise that he gave to us through Melchizedek. So the covenant of God's oath in granting a new priesthood, the covenant of God's oath in giving us a great high priest. So this writer of Hebrews, whoever you would think that is, is hammering and hammering and hammering for us to understand what God's done for us is an incredibly massive promise and oath given to us, all fulfilled, and we see that in our Savior, Jesus Christ. He's an able high priest. He's a saving high priest. He's a fitting high priest. He's a perfect high priest, and he's a forever high priest. Can I hear another amen? I want to get you guys going tonight. He is the absolute final and permanent one who God has given to us, and he is the eternal Savior and Son of God. So in chapter 8, he is the mediator of a better covenant. We have a high priest, we have a better covenant. Now the fault of the first covenant, again, Lowell, I, I keep reflecting on your passage, your teaching last week, it was fantastic, on the law and God's hope built into his first covenant was to get us looking forward to what he had promised to, in Christ. It's fantastic. So the law is holy and just and good. There's nothing wrong with the law. The fault is in those who didn't keep it. And that's where the fault lies. But that was the, pro- the purpose of God giving the law. Now the promise of the better covenant is the immeasurable grace of God. 
Notice, go to chapter 8. Six times God says, this is what I'm going to do. I will, I will. In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10, it says, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. And through Israel came the promise to the world. In Hebrews chapter 10, 8, verse 10, I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. The promise of an internal supernatural change by the Spirit of God for those who believe. Unlike the old written on tablets of stone, God now has written on the fleshly tablets of our hearts. Hebrews chapter 10, again, verse 8, verse 10, again, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. The promise is an all and inclusive reconciliation to God. God said, this is what I'm going to do. The old that condemned and separated, the new would bring us together back to God. And first of all, the, Israel, the nation Israel and then the individual promise to those who believe. Verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 12. I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. Are you not thankful for the mercy of God? But God said, I will be merciful. If God is not merciful, we have a huge problem. If he deals with us according to our sin, we have a huge problem. But I will be merciful through this new covenant, promised and, and sanctified through Christ. Again, the law had a ministry of condemnation. And then he says, verse 12 again, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, God knows all things, obviously. <laughs> but God's saying, I'm going to forget them because I can forget them through the sacrifice of Christ. The penalty has been paid and, our, and our, our, our offense toward God taken care of. Verse 13, in that he says a new covenant has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So let me ask you a question. What covenant would you prefer? The old or the new? Obviously, that's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to tell us. Hey, we have a new covenant. And so for the Hebrews who were wanting to go back into that old law, he said, hey, why would you want to do that? What would you choose here? Now, it's difficult for these who he's writing to because they're so ingrained in the law and in keeping these things in order to be right with God and have peace and rest. Jesus has so delivered us that it blew the minds of those who knew the law perfectly. It's so ingrained, and yet so that, that he's hammering away on that. Jesus, before going to the cross, he said, he took the cup in communion, gave thanks, gave it to his disciples, saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood in the new covenant that is shed for you. And we're going to talk about the blood tonight a little bit because it's a key word in our passage. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a, what? New creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Now what is the ministry of reconciliation? Paul tells us. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Not through the fleshly ordinances, not through all these things. In Christ he was reconciling the world to himself. How? Not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Fantastic. 
we who have been reconciled have a word for those who are not yet reconciled to God. Be, so it's as though the Holy Spirit, would, God would plead through us, be reconciled to God. Again, what would you rather? Be in rebellion against God or reconciled to God? Absolutely. And anyone who begins to deal with their sin understands their need to be reconciled to God. We'll talk about that tonight a little bit also. So the writer now continues in contrast to covenants by contrasting the earthly service and sanctuary with the heavenly service and sanctuary. And that's where we're heading now tonight. Here's the outline that I have for chapter, six, uh, for chapter uh, 9 if you're taking notes. The earthly services, listen, the earthly services were divine. They were given by God. The earthly sanctuary, though, was symbolic. So the earthly services were divine. The earthly sanctuary was symbolic, verses 1 through 10. Verse 11 through the end of the chapter, the heavenly service is eternal. It's eternal. That means timeless. And secondly, the heavenly sanctuary, listen, this is so fantastic. The heavenly sanctuary was sacrificed. What is the heavenly sanctuary? It's Christ. It's Jesus himself, as we'll see. So the earthly services were divine. The earthly sanctuary was symbolic. Let's start now in chapter 9. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all, or the holy of holies, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat, and he says, of these things, we cannot, not, cannot, not, cannot now speak in detail. Now, when these things, a key word, when these things had, thus, had been thus prepared. In other words, there was great preparation going on here. This wasn't just sort of off the cuff. There was something very important and very serious about these earthly services and the sanctuary, that it was done right. And particularly, as we'll look at a little bit, the Day of Atonement and what was going on there for that high priest. Serious stuff. And so when it had thus been prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services, but under the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. So let's look at the tabernacle. We're not going to go in great detail, but you have this in front of you, I hope. So the courtyard that surrounded the tabernacle was 150 feet long and 75 feet wide. It was cordoned off, if you'll look there with that, maybe that little picture on the bottom. It was cordoned off with a seven and a half foot high curtain wall of white linen. So if you can picture seven and a half feet high. Now, it, by the way, it's not a very big place when you're speaking of millions of people. So I decided I'd come and measure our sanctuary this, today, and I did that. And our new sanctuary is about 75 feet this way. And it's about 120 feet wide. 
The building is about 150. When I was measuring, I was thinking, man, we, we, we hit the sanctuary size. <laughs> that, now, this is a box, so it's different. Probably didn't have very good acoustics, but it was a box. So picture that. This is the size about of that, that uh, tabernacle. The tabernacle and the, the sanctuary part of it was 45 feet long by 15 feet wide and 15 feet high. So that box within it is 45 feet long, 15 feet wide, so I measured our sanctuary. The part that juts out here is about 16 to 17 feet. And from this stage to the wall of the uh, sound booth is about 45 feet. So if you can picture a box about this size, and if you look, if you can see those lights that are hanging, about the bottom of those lights is 15 feet high. So there you have the size of this thing called the the holy place and the holy of holies that were in this courtyard. It was divided into two parts, as you see there. The holy place, about 30 by 15 by 15. It takes two-thirds of it. Contained the lampstand, the table of showbread, and the altar of incense, which are, which are uh, shown there. Behind the altar of incense was a very thick veil that was held up by four gold gold columns resting in silver sockets. Now this is the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. The second part, called the holiest of all or the holy of holies, was a cube, 15 by 15 by 15. It contained the Ark of the Covenant. What was the Ark of the Covenant? It was about a three foot by two foot box overlaid with gold. Had, it was made of acacia wood and it had on top of it the mercy seat that covered it. Inside the law, and then there's, there's questions about what was in there and what wasn't because you read different things. But here the writer tells us, overlay with gold, in which, verse 4, were the golden pot that had the manna, Anna's, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. So inside, under the mercy seat, were these things. Uh, Aaron's rod that budded was God confirming who he called to the priesthood in Aaron, the whole process. The golden manna was, was a to remind them of God's provision in the wilderness. You remember what happened? They started, well, what's this manna? Manna, manna, manna. All we did is manna, manna. And so God had to deal with them concerning his provision. Um, and then it was made of acacia wood over, overlay with gold. and had two golden angels or cherubim over it whose wings touched each other. So that, again, this whole uh, thing that we're looking at, he's describing here. But then he says, well, we don't have a lot of time to go into it. So we'll take a little tonight and, and look at that. Now, the, listen, the only place that the people could go was the courtyard. Only the priests could go into that holy place, and only the high priest could go into the holy of holies, and that one time a year. So when the, the priests went in, they, had this, they were going in, there, there were different sacrifices, the sin offering, the burnt offering, the peace offering. But only the priests could go into that first part, the holy place, to perform the services. What were they doing? They were filling the lampstand with oil morning and evening to keep its light burning. They were changing the showbread every Sabbath. So they had service that they were doing for the people in ministering as priests. And then they were placing the incense on the altar before the veil. So that was their responsibilities as well as obviously offering the, being the mediator with God for the people. Now, the only person that could go into that second part, the Holy of Holies, was the high priest, and that only one, the only time he could go was once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. 
Leviticus 16, a very, very solemn assembly that God gave to the children of Israel. In Jesus' day, the week before this very special day, the high priest would begin to prepare himself for the Day of Atonement. So again, it, was, it required a lot of thought and a lot of preparation to get it right. He had to prepare himself and he had to prepare for the, what he would have to do in service in the Holy of Holies. So it's serious stuff that he had to get ready for. Now, verse 7 of Hebrews 9. Into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. It was covering sin, the Day of Atonement. It's in Leviticus 16, Leviticus 23, Leviticus 25, as well as mentioned. Now, here's the thing. The high priest would be alone. I think that's very significant as far as Jesus, our high priest. There's only one who could go into the heavenly sanctuary and none other, and that is Jesus. So the high priest in the earthly sanctuary, in the earthly service, went alone. He would wash himself, put on the linen garments, his tunic, trousers, sash, and turban. He would never even think of entering that without blood. And that's something, again, for us to continue to meditate on. God, throughout his scriptures, was hammering home the necessity of blood sacrifice. There must be a life offered, a life taken, a life given. Now, a bull for a sin offering was brought to the high priest. He laid his hands on it, confessed his own sins and the sins of his family, it was left there momentarily at the brass altar there in the courtyard. So if you're, if you're looking at that, that brass altar, it was kept there, this, this sin offering. He laid his hands, confessed. It left there momentarily. Then two goats were brought to him, the high priest. So I, I, if you can picture my storytelling a little bit here as what was going on on the Day of Atonement. Lots were cast to determine which was the Lord's goat and which was the scapegoat. So you have two goats, the sin offering is waiting momentarily. Lots were cast for the Lord's goat. A scarlet cord was tied on it. And then the other was called the scapegoat. The bull, his sin offering, was then sacrificed. Its blood poured into a basin there at the brass altar. The high priest would then take some coals from the altar, put them in a censer, take some of the specially prepared incense and go into the holy, of holy place and there place the incense on the burning coals before the mercy seat in the holy of holies. So again, get the picture of what's happening. Then, as he's continuing this day of atonement, he would come back to the bronze altar of, of burnt offering, take the blood of the bull and then go again into the holy of holies and sprinkle it's blood before the mercy seat. The congregation would watch as he took, then took the blood of the bull and the blood of the Lord's goat and sprinkle the blood on the bronze altar, its horns on the altar itself. So he comes back out and he sprinkles the blood and the congregation is watching. Now, finally, providing the high priest had not been smitten dead because he wasn't prepared. In fact, it's said that he had, he had uh, bells on his ankles and a cord tied around his ankle so when he went in if it stopped jingling you got to drag him out dead it was very very important very serious so providing that he wasn't smitten dead 
the scapegoat was then brought forward. The high priest would lay his hands on his head, confess his own sin, and now the sins of the people. He would then say, bear and be gone. And it would be led into the desert and released. The priest would, would, who led it would watch until it disappeared from sight. Then he would signal to another priest who would signal to another priest until word got back to the high priest. And the great moment had come when the high priest would announce, forgiven, your sins are forgiven and they are departed from you. You know, I was talking to someone on Sunday. I think we've really lost a lot through not keeping some, some uh, services in such a way that are meaningful. Uh, I did a, a memorial Monday, a military memorial, and there is so much there in really bringing to mind again what, we're, what, what, what we have. And we've, I think we've lost a lot of that in, in these different things. I mean, we have the Lord's table, but, and I don't even know what I would bring back. But I know when I go to, you know, officiated official things and military things, boy, it just moves me. You know what really gets me is when they, they're like, I'm just, I'm, I'm moved by that. It's like such honor and dignity in, in saluting someone. And, and it's, so that's what we have here. They're, they're watching this whole thing. It's all going on. Forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. They are departed from. Brothers and sisters, this is divine. It's divine service. It's God himself saying, look, watch, learn, receive, be moved by these things that are going on. And so once a year, they'd have the Day of Atonement. This is what would happen on that day. So when he said, forgiven, your sins are forgiven, and they are departed from you, the people would break out in singing the Hallel Psalms of praise and worship to God. Their sins had been atoned for for another year. And every year, year after year, this ceremony was performed, and it was a glorious thing. But let's go on, is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Here's what they had. Here's what was going on. Here's what you had to these Hebrew Christians. The earthly services were divine. The earthly sanctuary was symbolic. Verse 10. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to conscience. Concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. Now he's pointing to the high priest. It cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to conscience. It's pointing to the high priest because the writer of Hebrews is focusing in on our great high priest. So even the high priest, with all his preparation, all the things that he went through, God using him to bring the blood, even that man called by God, taking a week to prepare, thinking seriously through, if I go in there and I'm not, I mean, you're talking serious stuff here. Now let me say this. The sinner has to have the same serious confrontation before God. That's what the Holy Spirit does. So as a sinner begins to think, I'm going to appear before God one day. That should put the fear of God in anyone's heart. That's what the gospel is doing. That's what the law is saying. 
So it's not unloving to say to someone, you need to understand your need for repentance. Your need to take seriously God taking your sin seriously. It's a real serious matter. I don't know if there's anyone here tonight sitting who has not taken that seriously. I hope that you understand one day you will stand before God in the heavenly place before him in judgment. And if you don't take the time now to prepare for that encounter, for that appointment, as I shared in the memorial service, there's an appointment you will not miss. It's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. So there's an appointment everyone, everyone, everyone will make with God. In fact, let me put it this way. There's an appointment God has put on his calendar for you, for me. And so it's a serious matter. And even the high priest who went through all that, and you'd think, no, no question in my mind, the children of Israel would look to that man as the high and say, now, there's a godly man. There's a guy, whoa. I mean, he was, he was it. But even his conscience, as it says here, he, he performed the service, could not perfect him. Nor can it perfect anyone else. It was all symbolic. Symbolic of what? That the way into the presence of God was barred. Wasn't possible. Atonement means a covering. The service was given by God symbolically of what was a reality in his presence. Even the high priest with all of his preparations... His conscience was reminded that he still had a need. The service was not in itself adequate. The tabernacle did not make a way. The tabernacle reminded them that there was not a way into the Holy of Holies. All the ceremonial sacrifices, the gallons and gallons of blood that was shed was not sufficient because of the blood of bulls and goats. Every day, every year was the reminder that the way to the holiest of all was barred, inaccessible. You know, I thought of Job. Now, God said of Job, have you considered my servant Job? Righteous man. I mean, when God starts boasting of you, you got to think, man. But then you got to go, well, hold on. What happened to Job? <laughs> and he was a right, God himself said, have you considered my servant Job? So God allows the things that he did in Job's life for his purposes but as Job's going through that with his friends, they had these despondent conversations. And his friends would say, well, Job, you've got to have sin in your life. Job, there's got to be this problem. Because certainly God, if you weren't, didn't have sin in your life, he'd... And, and this whole conversation. And really what happens is like Job and his friends, we as despondent sinners many times wonder. There are a lot of questions that rise. The greatest human need seems like it's unmet. Like it's remained Unmet. Job said, nor is there any mediator between us who can, may lay his hand on both of us. So Job's there wrestling with his friends. He said, you know, there's, how does that happen? How does that work? How can I convince my, what, what's going on? The greatest human question remains unanswered. In the, in the, in the times of great discouragement, despondency, you're just going through life and, and, and these things are happening. You're going, okay. The greatest human question remains unanswered. Job said, if a man dies, shall he live? 
Now that's a great, one of the greatest questions that we have as human beings. If a man dies, will he live? The greatest problem, it seems, remains unsolved. If all these things aren't adequate. Job said, oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. Even the righteous Job in his conscience knew something more was needed. Remember Rex the dinosaur in Toy Story? It's one of my best little moments of that. He realized that Woody the cowboy was not trying to destroy Buzz Lightyear at all. He thought that and he was really, and so you know what he said? He said, great, now I have guilt. Remember that line? And you know, the dinosaur goes, I can't do it. Great, now I have guilt. You see, when we do something wrong, we have guilt. We know there's something wrong. Guilt causes alienation, causes separation. And guilt, there's a need to make it right to avoid punishment. That's what happens when guilt comes along. How can I sort of get this right so I don't have to be punished? I don't have to experience that. But this, this whole, and the Bible has a lot to say about our conscience because it says in regard to the conscience, the Bible has a lot to say about conscience in it. Our conscience convicts us in bearing witness to the truth of God. In Romans chapter 2, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness. So our conscience convicts us and bears witness to what is true. The Bible says we can, have a, we can enjoy a pure and a good conscience. The Bible also says a good conscience can be rejected. In 1 Timothy, having faith in a good conscience, which some having rejected concerning the faith have suffered shipwreck. It's possible to reject a good conscience. The Bible speaks of a weak conscience, a defiled conscience, a seared conscience, an evil conscience. Our conscience testifies to others as they observe our actions. It's amazing how clearly a guilty conscience can be seen on a child. Can you hear an amen? I mean, it's like, there it is. Now, we as adults have gotten pretty good at hiding our guilty conscience. When I was guilty, my father used applied psychology on my hind parts. And I do believe that God is, in his scriptures, has as a means of dealing with the guilt of a conscience, that pain is the thing that gets to the heart, depending on the age. And thus, pain cleanses the conscience from the guilt. It releases a child from guilt. And when there's no pain, then I believe personally that there's no getting to the heart of the matter. And I understand there are different personalities. I I get all that. But the Bible clearly says, hey, pain, the rod, will drive evil far from a child. You can't reason with a two-year-old. Well, you can a little bit, but. So God has given to us some, some, some uh, principles on conscience. Now, when Moses was talking to the children of Gad and the children of Reuben, who had promised to come over and fight with them in the promised land, and then go back to their own territory. So Moses said to them, if you don't do that, you don't do what you say you do you have sinned against the lord and be sure this is where that passage comes your sin will find you out so if i don't deal with my guilt and we're pretty good at hiding it 
But what happens when, that doesn't, when I don't do that? Eventually, it comes out in erotic behavior. It can be manifested in anger, despair, discouragement, depression. Many of these things are really the fruit of a guilty conscience. Some problem that's going on there. And so we want to make sure we understand that our conscience is something that we need to take heed to. Now, the conscience isn't perfect by any means because sin has marred much of that. But as a believer with the Holy Spirit, I can have a good conscience. I can enjoy a good conscience, a pure conscience. In fact, Paul told Timothy, the end of the commandment is love from a pure heart and a good conscience. What's God driving us to? A good conscience. Paul said, I've lived in all good conscience before. Can you say that? Can I say that? That really I'm taking heed to the things that I know aren't right in my life and I'm bringing them to the cross and finding there the forgiveness and cleansing from God and being truthful. I'm going to people. I'm asking for forgiveness. I'm reconciling my life with those whom I have ought with. The Bible has a lot to say about our conscience, but there is one thing that will remain fixed concerning the conscience. And we ought not negate this or try and get around it. It's this, no earthly services and no earthly sanctuary can ever make a way into the presence of God. Is that not fabulous or what? I don't care how ornate it is or how many stained glass windows there are. I don't care how godly someone might be and thankfully there are a lot of very godly people. But none of them or no building can ever, ever, ever Bring us into the presence of God. It's a very freeing thing to understand. The Holy Spirit indicating, verse 8, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was standing. God had something else he was pointing them to. And if there is no until, notice what he says there, concerned with foods and drinks, verse 10, imposed until the time of reformation. Now, if there's no until, all the time in the world would never be enough time to solve the problem of guilt, sin, and separation from God. What happened with Adam in that garden, even Adam, is gonna continue through all of time unless God gives to us something to solve the problem. And he did that. He did that. The earthly services were divine. The earthly sanctuary was was symbolic. The old covenant was a reminder and reinforcer of separation from God until the time of reformation. And that great time of reformation was when Jesus came to be our great high priest. I don't have a clock. What time are we? How are we doing here? Eight o'clock. Okay, what time did I start, Greg? Oh, no, okay. 7.50? Okay, I've used my half hour. <laughs> Should we stop there and pick it up next time? I'm loving it, but I also like to have a little dialogue. So I guess we can't vote on that, right? Let me finish mine and then Paul will take it up next time. Then Greg. Keep
key word here is blood. Key word. Another key word is eternal. The eternal salvation that we have. In the scriptures, blood always indicates a death suffered and a life offered. A holy God requires a perfect, sinless, human sacrifice. Peter said you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without spot or blemish. Eternal is five times in Hebrews, and I think it's very, it's a good trail to follow. In Hebrews chapter five, verse nine, he says, who in the days of his flesh, now what I want you to, to note here, except for one, one of these five eternals, Every one of them has to do with the death of our Savior, his bloodshed. And so in Hebrews 5, it says there in verse 7, who in the days of his flesh when he had offered up prayers and supplication with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from what? Death. And was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things he suffered. And having been perfected, he, he, Jesus, became the author of what? Eternal salvation. He suffered and became the author, the forerunner of eternal salvation. Hebrews chapter 6. If you're there, please read with me. It's great for your, for your spiritual and my spiritual strength to read the word. Verse 6. Excuse me, chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, leave the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ. Let us go on to perfection. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God, of doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of a resurrection of the dead, and of what? Eternal judgment. Now, it's assumed as part of what we're talking about, but it doesn't directly talk about the death. That's the exception. Hebrews is saying, let's go on, let's go on. Now in Hebrews chapter 9, the next three are in our passage tonight. Verse 12, verse, Hebrews 9, 12. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he, Jesus, entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Now, I, f- I want to go back for a moment here. Notice, Jesus is that, is that heavenly sanctuary, the tabernacle. Look at verse 11 of chapter 9. Christ came as high priest of good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. The tabernacle is Christ. He came and tabernacled among us. It's fantastic. All the things carried on in the tabernacle were picturing for us Jesus and his sacrifice and his death. So in Hebrews 9, 12, he with his own blood entered and obtained eternal redemption. The the, uh, fourth one is in chapter 9, verse 13. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ That is Jesus who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God. Cleanse your conscience from dead works. Dead works are all the traditions, all the things that God gave to them as far as those ordinances. As a means of coming to him. So Jesus offered himself without spot through the eternal spirit to cleanse us from dead works. The final one is verse 15. For this reason Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant By means of death. How did he mediate the covenant? He died. He died. That was God's mediation. 
for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. He died and mediated an eternal inheritance for us. It's eternal. So the earthly services were divine. The earthly sanctuary was symbolic. The heavenly service is eternal. The heavenly sanctuary was sacrificed. God himself. I like what Greg said. When we get into that eternal realm, the kingdom age and all that, God himself will dwell with, me, with us. The whole picture of that. Jesus said what? He said, I am the way. I am the truth. No one comes to the Father but through me. The way was not yet made. Jesus said, I am the way. And then the final passage I'd like to read because it just really blows my mind is in Matthew 27. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice at his crucifixion, laying his life down, and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. You look at the tabernacle, that veil that was there, it was torn from top to bottom, signifying what? That the way to the presence of God was just mediated at the cross. And so here's what it goes on to say. I would have loved to have been there. The earth would quake, the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. I go, yikes! (laughs) Uncle Joe, I thought, I I mean, I did your memorial. (laughs) So when the centurion and those with him were guarding Jesus, who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly this was the Son of God. Indeed. Now, brothers and sisters, the earthly service is eternal. The heavenly sanctuary is sacri- has, was sacrificed. So we're going to come out of the grave and blow a lot of people's minds. I think when we get to heaven, we're going to be surprised at who's there. That's what I think. You made it? And they're going to look at you and go, yeah, and you made it? <laughs> How'd that happen? I'll tell you how it happened. It didn't happen because I went to a nice sanctuary. It didn't happen because I had some great pastor or anything. It happened because Jesus is the eternal sacrifice that I might have eternal redemption, eternal salvation, and eternal inheritance. Yeah. <laughs> Let me pray. Lord, we thank you again for your word. Please bless our conversation, Lord, as we want to just give you glory tonight and bask, Lord, in the vastness of the things that are ours in Christ. You have blessed us, Lord, with the word, and I pray, Lord, we would be going on, going on, going on, learning these things, and they wouldn't be hard to understand because we become dull. Stir us, Father, I pray in your word. Bless, Lord, now our time. In Jesus' name, amen.